Welcome back to the Stable Moments Podcast. I'm Rebecca Britt, your host, and today we are talking to a very special guest, Joan Ulsher, who wrote the book Misplaced Childhood. Now, she was in foster care, and then she was actually returned back home, but this is not just a story of trauma. This is a story of a person who endured childhood trauma, uh, understood and experienced it, the injustices of the system, and then went ahead and went to the army and had a whole career and retired and then chose to use her experiences to become a child advocate. And now she has written a book so that she can help others understand, empathize, and find their role in being the solution uh, to our foster care crisis and to just helping kids in need and advocating for them. So I'm going to go ahead and roll that intro and then you will meet Joan. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together we can end the foster care crisis. Hey Joan, thank you so much. I'm so happy to have you on the Stable Moments podcast and excited to learn more about your book. I would love for you to just give a brief introduction on who you are in relation to child advocacy before we dive in. Thank you for having me. I am a a court-appointed special advocate. It's a volunteer program that represents the advocacy of children in foster care. Uh, I became a a CASA about five years ago in San Antonio. So my local program is called Child Advocate San Antonio. We're part of a huge network uh, under the umbrella of the National CASA and GAL Association. This was my calling in life. So it took me a little bit uh, longer to get here than than most people because I started after a a 20-year career in the Army. But I love what I'm doing. Well, tell us a little bit about your background specifically. Like if you have a background in the army, like what led up to being a child advocate? I took the long road. I I had a very traumatic childhood. I had a, um, I grew up in in Buffalo, New York, um, 70s, 80s, back when there weren't really a a lot of child um, advocacy networks out there. So I ended up in foster care at one point. got returned home. And my brother, uh, let me back up a little. So there were four of us as children and two of us, myself and my older brother, uh, Joey, uh, went into foster care. We, we really just begged to get taken away. Uh, and we finally did, but I got sent home and it didn't make any sense to me, but he never did. So he aged out of care and he joined the army. And it wasn't until he joined the army that I, I was able to get communication with him again. So essentially going into care at about age 15, um, that was the last day I, I ever saw him alive. Uh, he joined the military and we had some writing back and forth. And then I thought, wow, you know, he sounds like he's doing well. He's got a future. He escaped this trauma from childhood. 
He's out of um, Buffalo and he's going to make a career out of this. So I decided I'm going to do the same thing. So I enlisted in the army at age 17. Um, weird. Both my parents, you know, had assigned permission because I wasn't uh, an adult yet. And then I went off to college in the reserves and graduated college, to the army, graduated or, or completed the army. And um, I talk about some of this in my book, being married and whatnot. Uh, but, but retiring in San Antonio, I just really never put a whole lot of thought to my past or working with children. But until I met a young man across the street at a barbecue and he was in foster care, my neighbors just kind of prefaced the whole barbecue as, oh, you're going to meet this young man. You know, he's he's in foster care. His family doesn't want him. You know, he's a friend of our sons. And so I was like, oh, OK, I want to meet him. And, and from that day, uh, and this is going back maybe 14 years ago, I started mentoring him. And I didn't expect that to that relationship to happen. But it just really grew organically because we we didn't talk about our experiences, but we knew that we needed each other. He needed somebody there for him. And I felt like people had kind of been there for me at various stages. And so we just started that naturally. And then it wasn't till fast forward years later, uh, 2018, and my husband's just walking out the door one day and goes, oh, I'm going to this CASA training. And I was like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> What's CASA training? And uh, so once he explained it to me, I started getting online and researching it. And, and that was the moment the blinders came off. And I realized there was this whole other world of child advocacy because I didn't have it when I was a youth. Mm-hmm. And then the young man that I had befriended and became a mentor for, he didn't have one either. So neither one of us knew anything about it. And, and then boom, I just started the process. And now that I'm um, involved in it, it's pretty much what I do full time as a volunteer um, can't stop talking about trying to get people to become CASA or even gal advocates. So the guardian ad litem might be in another state or another jurisdiction, but, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely the long road to get there. Well, I love that you were able to provide mentorship kind of organically and that, that led to your, the rest of your story. You said something that, um, draw my attention where you said like, as a child, you were trying to get removed. Like you wanted to be removed. Yeah. And the reason why I want to chat about that for a second is because so often when we're training mentors, we talk about like these kids often don't have a perspective that like my home was horrible and now I've come to this great place. They have a perspective like that they were removed from the only thing they ever know. So it's really interesting to, to me to hear this other perspective of like, no, we we really wanted to be removed. So can you just tell me a little bit more about that? I always knew there was some sort of dysfunction in our home. And, you know, from a young age in in, in my book, I think I only go back to maybe about memories at age eight. Um, and, and it began with domestic violence. So seeing my father uh, suffer from alcoholism, come home and um, viciously beat my mother. That's kind of what I initially remember. But then when we were trying to intervene, then we became the victims as well. And then it was just a free for all. It it just seemed like from that period on, it didn't matter who you were, uh, whether you were mom or whether you were one of the children or whether it was dad was the abuser or mom was the abuser. It it, it was just chaos. And, And I just knew from an early moment, like even watching fictionalized TV shows like Brady Bunch, The Waltons, Eight is Enough, that I was like, those parents seem different. Why, why are my parents different? And, and and when you're a young child, 
you don't often compare what's going on in your friends' homes. You just assume, well, they must be going through the same thing and nobody else talks about this. But we did uh, reach out to the authorities on a number of times, uh, running to the police station to alert them, and then everything just fell on deaf ears or we weren't taken seriously. Or if they did appear at our house, we were coerced and maybe somewhat extorted to recant. So this was going on for years. And by the time uh, my brother Joe and I finally got removed, um, I I don't know who initiated that. I'll I'll never understand where that came from. If it was, you know, a teacher or a neighbor, somebody, somebody finally just said enough's enough. What's going on behind that door has to stop. So that last time when they came, it just seemed like they weren't willing to take us recanting as an answer. So we didn't. And we just said, please. And then it became a fight with um, the investigators and my mother. And then eventually we we just were taken. Um, but I know you're, you're right. There are a lot of children that feel like they've done something wrong uh, in their house and they were removed and they love that parent, whether it was a dysfunctional or neglectful situation. Um, the children are awfully very much traumatized because they've been removed from the only parent they knew. And I think in in my case, it's probably the the unusual circumstance of just, no, I can't do this anymore. I have to survive. And that means getting out of here. We have both circumstances, but for sure, I, I, I all the children I've worked with, the majority have just, just please, I want to go home. You also said something that is very interesting. Um, and I would love you to respond to this from the perspective of your childhood, but then also what you've seen as a CASA. So you were removed, but just you were returned. So one, that seems crazy. Two, um, I wonder, I know that you said back then there weren't the same type of child protective uh, policies in place and and you didn't have a a court court appointed advocate. But um, nowadays, like, is it typical that if children are removed, if one child is removed, that it's deemed that those parents wouldn't be fit for any children? That's a great question. I don't have any professional experience in knowing what each jurisdiction is going to require. Um, back in the day, yeah, there were four of us. My older sister was probably already 18 at the time. So I don't know what her, and my younger brother was several years younger than me. And um, I don't think he was really aware of a lot was going on. Uh, I think that the brunt of everything was kind of my middle brother and I. Um, when I got returned home, I asked my mom, like, you know, hey, where's Joey? Why didn't he come home? And and she, like, kind of bragged, like, well, I didn't want him. You know, I made him a ward of the state, PINS petition, a person in need of supervision. And I'm like, well, how come I didn't get a say? Because the, the, the driving force for me writing my current book was, geez, this terrible childhood happened to me and I didn't get a say. I had nobody to speak for me, but now I'm doing this for children that, you know, they they also necess- not necessarily getting a say. They're being removed. And and I would suspect that uh, from the cases I've worked with, all the children are removed. But during the case of, let's say you've got a family of five and all five of the children go into care for neglect, let's say, because the vast majority of children coming into the foster care system are because of uh, neglect more than the, mm-hmm. the abuse. So let's say there's a neglectful situation and five children get removed, but then mom's also pregnant. 
Um, but the children are removed later, you're advocating for them and, and you're going through the court process, but then the baby is born. CPS may come in and decide we're either going to remove that child or not. And, and I've had uh, both circumstances where the child remained with mom while the other five children were, were um, working their way through the system and, and mom was doing what she needed to do. And then in other instances where they've come in, they've drug tested the parent and said, we got to take the baby too. Um, but I, I think that because my circumstances in entering foster care were 40 years ago, it's hard to believe it was that long ago, but 40 years ago, 1983, uh, I, I do want to believe that the system is better in 2023 and that if there is a report of one child being abused in the home, I would think that they do sweep in and take everybody. Uh, what I'm now finding with um, the advent of my book coming out is that my younger brother has found uh, my website. He's aware that I'm writing a book and he has a different opinion, mm-hmm. you know, so he, he has a different opinion about what childhood was like. And I, I don't know um, his motivations or whatnot, but uh, that's obviously a problem when you have one child say, no, you never went into foster care. You weren't abused. This didn't happen. This didn't happen to Joey. And then it's like, no, it was <laughs> really truth of experience you have somebody discounting it, it, it's tough. And I think that if that were to continue happening today, where one or two child children were taken away and two or more or one were left behind, there's an opportunity for the parent or the parents to manipulate that child mm-hmm. and, and fill them with a whole bunch of other uh, facts or right. circumstances. Uh, and, and I guess I never reconciled that over the last 40 years, I, I never had a good relationship with my younger brother, but just 40 years later, I'm just hearing that he never knew what happened to me or his older brother. Uh, and wow. So I hope that doesn't happen to kids today. Um, but in the same token, if, if one is being abused, they likely all are, they all need some sort of intervention. Yeah. I remember. So I have cousins that are adoptive cousins in my aunt and uncle adopted them and they were actually in a foster home and that's where they received their abuse. Um, And the reason the culmination of one of them coming into care was she was three and she was put in scalding water and burnt for peeing her pants, burnt um, over half of her body. And so she was in the hospital and that's when they took her and the six-year-old and they were biological siblings, but that foster family had biological children and the only children that were removed was my adoptive cousin. So the children that they were fostering were removed for extreme abuse and neglect. Yeah. Um, and their biological children were allowed to stay, I guess, because there was no evidence that they treated their biological children that way. But my mind just goes like, if you have the ability to yeah. harm any child that way, um, you know, and I don't know. I know that there's, I'm sure tons of perspectives that and experiences that go into making these decisions and it's not black and white. I'm the first one to say like, I don't know the right answer, but I remember. Yeah, there's being- gotta be a lot with the the law, you know, whatever the jurisdiction and counties and states uh, must also stipulate yeah. what the actions are going to be by the departments. Well, that's why it's so important though. Like you didn't have a voice to leave. Your voice wasn't heard to leave and your voice wasn't heard coming back, you would have made different decisions had your voice been heard on both of those accounts. So 
tell me a little bit more and, and everybody that's listening about the CASA role and how important it is to give kids that voice. Okay, so the CASA role, uh, I consider it vital because it's personal to me, given that I didn't have anybody um, advocate for me. I uh, I know that through the years, the model has used various terminology, like be the voice for the voiceless or or whatnot. Um, but I've met a number of youth that have um, come out of the foster care system and they're now advocating or um, finding successful businesses and whatnot. They um, never liked that term, that the advocate is their voice. I feel like with the younger children, oh, absolutely. If, if a child is three, five, six, they may not be able to articulate to authorities uh, after they've been removed what's going on with them or what they need or what they desire. Uh, so, of course, the cost advocate would be fully trained um, and appointed um, on official orders by the judge to represent that family and be a fact finder for all information, therapies, education, medical uh, interactions with family, interactions with siblings, um, needs and desires. Uh, those children do need that person to look into things a lot closer than a child protective uh, service work could. Um, they have just way more kids in the system and, and on their caseload. Uh, for the older children, what I like to um, say is that rather than being uh, their voice, I, I'm more trying to empower them to have a voice. So mentoring and working with them and, and still doing the same fact finding and the same recommendations and concerns to the judge, but also I choose to work mostly with teenagers because I was a teen when I went into care. And so I want to feel like, in a way, I'm giving back to them so that they can see, like, hey, I wasn't able to do this when I was your age, but you know what? With your with with my help by your side, you're 16, you're 17. Let's get you to see the judge face to face in his chambers. So, because I, I have to represent the child's best interests, and sometimes with a child who was removed from a very dangerous situation, they might be. I don't care what you want to happen for me. I just want to go to that home. And the home can be completely unsafe and dangerous and um, not in their best interests at that time. Uh, they can still talk to the judge and say, I still want to do this. But then the judge essentially has all the parties' information. They have what the attorneys are saying. They have what the CPS department is saying. They have what the child is saying, and they have what the advocate is saying. So the whole idea of having a CASA or GAL advocate volunteer on behalf of any children, any age, is that it gives the judge the most complete information and perspective about the child or sibling group before making a decision that could alter their future. Um, so the, I take it personally, and, and I guess that's how I, I see the whole um, CASA role. I love that a lot because um, I think that when you hear about a CASA rule who is being the voice for a child, if that's how you've heard about it, um, yes. then you could think that you just listen to what the child wants and relays that. Or um, I like, I love that you're saying that your job is fact finding because 
my concern would be uh, like that your bias would come in. And I think it's easy for people if they haven't had dysfunctional lives um, to go into some of these families and go, she should definitely not, you know, be in this family or this, this isn't to my standard of like what raising a child good is where we need to remove that bias. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because almost in in any field you're working in with youth, whether it's um, in in a counselor role, therapist, uh, a mentor, an advocate, yeah, you got to worry that is there going to be bias? And that's where uh, I lay it out on the table with I, I, I do come with lived experiences that allow me to be in the shoes of a child that has been in care and now advocate on behalf of them. Does that mean because I had a terrible childhood and wanted to be removed that all the children I work with should be the same situation? No, you have to put your personal perspective aside. I use what knowledge I uh, and experience I had in the past to help me lean on um, my commitment and my dedication to the kids, I think is, is where that really comes to. So instead of my traumatic past influencing exactly the decision making or the the recommendations that I give to the judge it's not that at all it's it's the dedication that's poured into it and then each child's situation is unique it could even be that in, in a family of four youth that you may have a different perspective on each child depending on what their needs are um i believe that the cost of program is is a good model uh, you know, we, we get at least 30 hours of training up front and then ongoing training through the year. And you're always under the guise of a supervisor. Uh, if there's a young advocate or an inexperienced advocate, and perhaps they might have some personal biases weighing in, that advocate supervisor is going to identify that. Um, and, and they should. And if they don't, then uh, hopefully when uh, they're presenting in front of the judge, maybe certain language they're using, somebody might go, oh, hold on a second. I think we're missing something here. But I think that would be the exception, that there would be bias in that regard. Um, one of the things that concerns me is that, yes, I I wrote the story and I talk about, you know, okay, I have this traumatic background. I got returned home after foster care and subject to more abuse. How am I going to be saved? Um, but my case flowed, my track record clearly shows that I've had every different outcome. Uh, We just did a successful reunion of um, seven children uh, with their parents. Love this family, love this family, love the kids, love the mom, just really horrendous situation that happened for the family. Uh, And and another case where uh, there was a sibling group and parental rights were terminated, yet several years later, one of the children reached out to me, was already adopted by uh, another family member, but her brother was still languishing in a... um, treatment center because he was just having behavioral difficulties, couldn't keep him in a foster home. He just kept blowing it up. She reached this. So the young girl reached out to me and said, Hey, I think you've got to get in touch with my mom. I hear she's good. And I'm like, Oh, what does that mean? And so, cause she'd been terminated several years prior and it was, it was a really messy substance use issue. And I went and met with her and like immediately started the phone calls and the emails to the, uh, child's attorney and the the caseworker and said, I think we need to come together on this. I think mom is ready to um, be reunited with her child or her her child is, you know, ready to be reunited with her. 
Um, so even though termination had occurred years later and we still had children in care, one sibling's adopted, another's aged out, there's still some in care. The one girl's like, I think you can do something for my brother and get him back with my mom because I think she's ready to go. And yeah, it, it was great. It was great to see that. Um, and, and everybody was happy in the end. So so when I mentioned earlier that a child might tell the judge, like, yeah, I want to go home right now. And I'd be like, oh, maybe not right now. It, it, it could take a little while for um, the environment is safe and permanent. Uh, we don't want to send a child back home where, or recommend a child go home uh, into an unsafe environment that's just going to blow up and lead to more trauma and another removal because it's it's sad when there's repeated exposure to those traumas over and over again. In the scenario you just brought up, that was above and beyond your CASA role, was it not? Yeah. So <laughs> I think you know when I when I look at what I do as a CASA, um, I've represented. 24 children so far to date in in under five years. I probably spend about the same amount of time each year uh, outside of my role as a CASA, just independently keeping up with the children whose cases have been closed. Amazing. So right now I've got eight children and they take uh, whatever time is needed for the case. But equally, I've got all those other children that were either adopted or aged out or um, uh, reunited, and there's still contact. So I spend a lot of time doing that. And, and I would say that, yeah, it's probably above and beyond because it's not part of what the program model says is a standard, uh, but it is not discouraged at all. Uh, if, if you've got a child that you worked with a couple of years ago and they were adopted, the advice that a supervisor might say is before you reach out to that minor child who is adopted, make sure it's okay with the adoptive family or make sure it's okay with the reunified parent You, know, you, you if the child is, is on a, under the age. So we wouldn't go out of our way and still interject ourselves as if we're carrying a court order. I wouldn't do that at all. Um, but if my children, the, the, the former kids that I represented, if they reach out to me, then I'm all over and I'll respond. You know, we had a, there was a, a birthday this weekend and then uh, another one last month. So I, I love to keep in touch with with the kids because that's where I can continue kind of that that mentoring role for them and let them know like, hey, it's OK. I was where you were once. Now I'm here. I don't want you to get discouraged because maybe. Things aren't going uh, as well as you had hoped wherever, you know, you landed right now, but there's still a future ahead of you. And I don't feel like I started my life until after I retired from the Army. So, mm. you know, all my youth behind me and 20 years in the Army, and I don't think my life started until after that. So I just want all the children to know that don't don't live in the moment right now. If you're 13, 16, 18, 21, uh, your life can still start way later. <laughs> I love that you're able and allowed and willing to um, continue on with these kids, continuing on, on with mentorship, especially if they are reaching out because you don't want to just be, you know, you get so involved in these kids' lives during one of the toughest parts of their lives. And you don't want to show that you really care. And then now that the case is done, I'm done with you. So that continuity exactly. of care is so important. And we know the research behind mentorship and we know the research behind healthy relationships with adults over time that actually care. 
uh, or kids perceive that they you actually care. So I would love for you to tell us a couple um, of examples of adults, healthy adults that did come into your life and you felt like were a good role model for you or good mentors. Part of my, my backstory in my book, the personal trauma I face, I don't go into a whole great detail, but but you'll you'll find there's little darts that land on the board as you're flipping through the pages. Um, probably the first person was a, a neighbor next door, just you know, called me Joni. I mean, my name's Joan because I'm from New York, and it's uh, I was named after Saint Joan of Arc. But she always called me Joni, and she was the only person to ever do that in my life. And it just it, it was one of those things that just made me feel special. And she tried in her own way to support um myself and my siblings um her husband would buy ice cream when the mr softy truck came through the neighborhood and all the kids would come out and you know get ice cream and, and she'd send like little bags of cookies uh, over to our house um but our what was going on in my house if, if there was dysfunction and chaos happening we were scurrying around rolling up all the windows because there was still like we have to keep what's happening contained and um, secret in our house so that the neighbors don't know, but they did know. And it wasn't until uh, later in the end of my high school experience that uh, I went back to her to say, Hey, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going off to college. And I just wanted to tell you, you know, how much I love and appreciate how you were, you always tried to be there for me. And so it, it seems minor at this point, but I'd given her a hug and she explained to me that, um, you know, hey, Joni, we were always so worried about you. I wish there was more I could be done. Uh, she may have been the person that had been calling CPS all along or calling the police. I don't know. Um, but she did alert my high school. And by calling my high school, when I went there, I kind of always felt like I was being watched. Mm. And so I wasn't paranoid. It really was happening. She didn't tell me this till I was a senior. But she says, you know, I called them all those years ago and said, please look out for this one. She's special. And I always felt then that the administrators and uh, a teacher, an English teacher, um, just, just they, they, they focused in on me and just treated me differently. They listened to me and just gave me opportunities there. And then other folks through my life, too, even ones that um, my mom, as uh, sad of a life she had, uh, tried to offer me like horseback riding lessons, you know, so take me under the wing and, and get me out of the city and into the country and ride some horses and and have that relationship. Um, a boss at uh, my first job, the zoo, same situation. And by this point, when I'm at working at the Buffalo Zoo, I'm, I'm in foster care uh, for part of this period. And after my first home experience, I get moved to a second home and who greets me on the front steps of that house, but my boss. And I thought, okay, this is shameful. You know, I, I, I love my boss and she was great, but we never talked about the past. And I, I was in such shock that she knew, but her now as an adult, I can look back and go, oh, she was just trying to be there to be a friendly face, a familiar face as I'm entering this second home for the first, for this, for the first time. And, and I just shut down um, and was mortified, but yet uh, there's more detail on this story in, in my, um, in my book, but I still really loved my boss because I just saw myself following her career 
um, and then going to college and uh, just, again, happenstance. I don't know. Eventually, maybe it was just a God thing that just I had those fictionalized ideals of the parents and the TV shows, the characteristics I liked, and then I saw them in other people. So as I saw it in my neighbor and I saw it in my teacher and then I saw it in the, the gal giving me horseback lessons or in my boss at the zoo or in my professor of military science at college, I saw the characteristics that I always wanted in a parent. And so when they equally looked back at me to give me any attention, I responded. I didn't reject them. So it was symbiotic. And I think sometimes today when I'm trying to reach a child, um, that's the hardest connection to make. You're trying really hard to give your life to a child and implore modeling um, positive behaviors and, and empathy and uh, concern and compassion, yet we can't control for when that child accepts that. Mm-hmm. And I think all the mentors, even that you work with, probably can identify with that too. It doesn't, you just can't turn it on and off. It, it's completely organic. And um, so those people just were place sporadically through my life to just keep me on track and keep me focused towards the goal, which was get out of this chaotic life, get away from the toxicity of my family, develop a career to overcome, you know, uh, teetering on the edge of poverty and and just have a a future goal apart from what my parents created for us. Yeah. And know that, that kindness and people that will listen to you or see through to, you know, the shining light you are, that they exist, you yeah, know, and they do see that. I, I actually love this story about um, your boss, because how often as mentors or people that are well-intentioned or we try to do something that is like, obviously in our head could only be perceived as the most amazing thing, <laughs> or supportive thing, kind thing, sweetest thing that we could ever do. And we're devastated or just we don't understand when it isn't perceived yep. that way and oh my gosh we're terrified if it's like it's perceived in a way that we were not being kind uh, and that those waters those those muddy waters i think often deter people from even wanting to to get that close because they're afraid of additional trauma. They're afraid of not knowing the right thing to say. They're afraid of not doing the right thing. And it is easier to stay in our comfort zone and to just stay home and pray rather than get out there and and do. But I love that you kind of showed that like, it's more of the net positive, uh, you know, with her good intention over and over again, being a good boss, showing up as a good person, even though there was you know, one or two things or whatever that could have been perceived or was perceived as like, oh, this isn't good for you. It was like this net positive of a human relationship that you still see it as, you know, someone that was good for you. Net positives. I never thought of it that way. And and this is something where, okay, so, so I, I'm not clinical background at all. I mean, my, my undergraduate degree was going towards zoology. I ended up, uh, having some difficult times, like most, most youth who had experienced um, a history of foster care, you struggle when you're on your own in college. So, you know, there was the occasional failing or academic warning or whatever, 
four years, took five years to complete. I had to change my major. So it was just like, oh, what can I, what can I complete just to get out and get to the army? So I have a degree in psychology, but I don't feel that I am an expert. Uh, so, you know, in speaking with somebody like you, other social workers, uh, LPCs, psychiatrists that have a clinical background and understand trauma, know how different each child's uh, experience is going to be. So those net positives for me, I think, were the overarching reason that I survived and developed resiliency. But that moment when my boss, somebody who I really looked up to and respected, and, and I was terribly afraid of anybody finding out that I was in care, that I was being abused, and, and some of the things that were going on at home. But when I guess it was the neighbor above her was the second foster home, they must have said like, oh, we have this this kid coming, you know, she's going to be in foster care in our house. And oh, we hear she works at the zoo. And then, you know, somehow that must be how the connection was made, mm. where I meet my boss there on the steps first. But the way the trauma <laughs> from that shameful experience affected me completely blacked out that entire experience in that home. You know, I still remember going to school. I remember being at work, I remember taking the bus occasionally still to the to the zoo, um, but no memory of what happened in that house upstairs. It just was so shameful for me uh, that it's literally wiped out of my mind. And, and, and you know, uh, in, in your experiences and professionalism that you know, trauma can just create a huge vacuum in our brain, in our memories, in our functioning. Uh, I, I, I equate, if people ask me or my the kids that I'm advocating for uh, ask me, you know, well, how did you survive and whatnot? I just tell them honestly, like, I feel like my brain is Swiss cheese at times. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, I remember this, but I lost that. Um, I've, I've lost some happy moments because of the things I've experienced. Uh, still every now and then, even in the last couple of years writing this book, oh yeah, some, some more stuff, you know, surface. So you'd go through the 70th iteration of the uh, manuscript and then realize I'm going to go back and put a little more detail here because I do recall this now having done this. Um, there's no doubt when you write a, uh, a personal memoir that has personal feelings and events and stories that things are going to surface. Um, so things did surface, but still that that memory at that home is, is just gone. So I don't know how to explain that. That's amazing. And it seems like it very could be because it was started by something that felt so shameful, something that you honestly wanted to hide from her. I did. You didn't want her to know about it. So it would make yeah. sense that your brain would go like, well, let's just let's protect us from this, too. This isn't happening. Yeah. When I had graduated college, um, I guess I was, I, I must've been 22 or 23. I was at my first military assignment in Alaska. The only time uh, at that point where I really recall talking about even being in foster care was when I went to volunteer at the Covenant House Alaska teen runaway shelter. And I really wanted to make a difference on the weekends and communicate with those children. And I remember becoming part of the Covenant House um, uh, family as a volunteer and explaining to them that I'd been in care and that I'd run away a number of times. And, and I just kind of wanted somehow to be able to connect since I was now a young adult um, and still close to the age of many of the teens that were in there. Um, but he, I even talked about that in the, in the book that I, I never felt like I ever made a connection there. And so then I just end up you know, meeting my husband and going on and having this, this life. And it wasn't until 
I'm retired, you know, 12 years into my marriage. And uh, I meet the young man across the street and we connect as mentor and mentee that uh, I tell my husband, like, well, well, yeah, of course I want to help this young man out. I was like, I was in foster care too. And he's like, because like, it just was something that I was still so ashamed of Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to tell folks. And then I think it was probably another maybe five years after that, that I even um, broke down uh, with a bunch of friends back in high school, just going back and having a reunion from going from Texas to Buffalo and meeting up with them and, and saying like, well, yeah, you know, I, I I had these experiences and and they're like, oh my gosh, we had no idea. And I'm like, yeah, I went through a lot of painful um, processes to remain distance and hide things from them because I was ashamed. Uh, and, and it took me decades to learn to deal with that shame. I don't know how many, you know, how we can break our life down into halves or thirds or however you want to break it down. But, you know, I, I personally believe that for a lot of us, you know, God does want to use our testimony or wants to use our pain for good and that we can take what we've been through and channel it in a way that can be helpful for others, especially through the deep empathy that we gain from understanding exactly what it's like to be in someone's shoes and giving them what, what we needed so, so badly. But with that, if that's true, if you're going to use your testimony for good, it does mean breaking down all of the coping mechanisms that you, that you created to protect yourself from that thing that you're saying, and whether it's God or, you know, any higher, whatever, whether you're saying, no, like I've literally spent my whole life trying to rise above, forget, package that, put a bow on it. And now you're saying, you're calling me, you're leading me to this place where I may use it, but before I can use it, I have to unpack it. And that is like, it's hard to survive sometimes just the unpacking. And, and uh, yeah, I've lived that myself where it's like, if, if you're gonna, if you're gonna use all of that for good, you need to experience the bridge between the experience and the helping because like what you're doing with your book um, and what I've done with some of my materials is there's self-disclosure, but none of it is about the self-disclosure. All of it is about the reader and what they can gain and the value you can add. Yes, I'll use my experience to show, to relate, to validate, to empathize. But the experience isn't about, oh, this happened to me and I'm a victim or any of that. The experience is all about what do we do with it? That is so true. So one of the things I try to say over and over in the book, a couple different ways uh, my editor call it would call it word word echoes, but I'm like, no, it's important to make this point. It's not what happened to me. It's not that traumatic story that you're going to read early in the book and then intersperse uh, through the second half of the book where I really explore the Costa experience. Um, it's what I'm doing with those experiences. So I, I, I guess I, I really still feel for people that are my age um, that I meet, whether they're friends or people in church or speakers you might might hear at a conference, and they're still suffering as a victim. I believe that sharing my story can be powerful because it means that it'll give uh, weight and meaning for people out there in, in the United States that maybe don't have that 
same experience. They, they don't they don't know what the comfort level is for children that have been traumatized or in care. Uh, there's a lot of healthy people walking around out there. My my husband's family. Oh my gosh, they're, they're just so normal. It's just. It's crazy because I had this chaos and then he's got this normal family, but he couldn't like initially relate to, well, what do you mean that happened to you? And this is why you act this way or something. And I'm like, no, everybody gets responds differently. But when you, when you have those experiences and you can share them and shed light for the rest of the country that, Hey, this may have happened to me 40 years ago, but it's still happening to children today in some shape or form use this information to empower you and to motivate and 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 impassion you to serve these children. And so the way my book is kind of broken down, like I said, there's some trauma up front just to set the stage. This is what I experienced. And then the journey through that pain and, and how I ended up healing from it and being transformed into a life of purpose as an advocate I will share some of the examples of some of the children's cases that I've worked on merely to give people kind of a hand holding in this is my experience as a CASA. But I cannot go into the detail of all the seriousness or trauma or, you know, detail and stuff of the muck uh, for my children um, to protect their privacy. So sharing my story gives that balance this is still happening. And then when I talk about the children, the relationship with them is more, these are kind of some of the things that, you know, an advocate would do with the children or advocate for some of the experiences you might have. But I'm not going to tell you, you know, anything related to uh, who abused them or what happened or what they went through or, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, uh, each of us has a story that we can use for good. And and it's not what happened to you. It's what you do with it. And, And one of the the, the key phrases I use in the book is that if you see a child swimming in peanut butter, you know, that's tough. That's rough. Be their jelly. Mm-hmm. I was there before swimming in peanut butter. It's hard. I mean, if you can just imagine. And, and now I feel like, all right, these children that are in foster care are in their own peanut butter too. And if I can be their jelly and make that peanut butter jelly sandwich so that we can kind of walk this process together, uh, and, and they can learn from uh, my healing, my resiliency. Uh, I, I, in turn, do see that from them as well. And it's powerful when you see, when you've realized how you healed and you you found your resiliency and then to see it in the children that you're serving. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. Whether it's through therapy or just talking, being there driving with them to see another sibling, um, answering any of their concerns and questions. Um, you got to take take what we had happen and, and just do something with it constructively. And it sounds like not only does your book help help readers with that, but also maybe if a reader is sitting at home going, well, I didn't, you know, I had a great childhood and I I just don't know how to even recognize peanut butter. And I don't know what being jelly means. It sounds like your book could help with, well, this is how you recognize a kid in peanut yes. butter. And this is how you be jelly for them. Yeah. I really believe um, every one of us can make a difference in some form. You know, and if if, if reading my book, somebody gets to the end and goes, wow, that, that CASA advocacy stuff is, is, uh, is a lot. Uh, I'm not sure that it's for me, then, then I 
you know, call them to try something else they might be passionate about, whether it's becoming a foster parent or even being a kinship person, being aware of those distant relatives, could be in a neighboring state, could be just across the city. Do you know um, that those children, you know, may have entered care or whatnot? Uh, we need more uh, kinship families to step up and take their children in. We lost a, a tremendous amount of uh, grandparents that were taken in children uh, during the pandemic because mm-hmm. of the health scares and that. So we lost grandparents that were usually the, the most prevalent of parties to step up and say, hey, those are you know my grandkids from such and such child or whatever. I want to take them in while the parents are working through their case. Uh, we, we lost that. And, and we need more kinship families. We need foster families. We need um, CASA advocates to, to, to be there and, and do that fact finding and, and make a recommendation to the judge. We need uh, more people to enter uh, into therapy and counseling, social work services, CPS caseworkers, mentors, uh, even in your program, the, the equine program. You know, there's one uh, not too far from me uh, in the outer reach of San Antonio, but we we just need people at all different levels to do something instead of just going, ah, that particular area wasn't for me. I mean, surely you got a heart for kids. There's there's going to be something you can do. Or, okay, at the very minimum, open up your wallet. You know? Right, right. Open up your wallet or share the messages. You know, when you see the posts, when you see the, the podcast or the, the Instagram posts from, you know, whomever, share those messages. It, it's going to reach somebody. Yeah. Or even changing your perspective. Like I I really do think that a lot of the, a lot of the big rewards in life are just in the details. So it's like, try not to judge, try to be helpful, try to be kind. I mean, even just not sharing the narrative, that's the negative narrative, like going into, you know, a Walmart and seeing a mom that's struggling. Oh, my kid would never act like that. Or, you know, some of those stories that we, we naturally have in our head, Um, but being able to change that narrative and hearing, having your kids hear you say things like, well, maybe she's having a hard time or we don't know what she's dealt with today. Just having that, uh, more kind perspective, uh, because I just know for a lot of parents and a lot of kids, they are just, one of their biggest struggles is dealing with perceptions of other people, other society members. That is so true, you know, and, and this is like stepping outside the, the advocacy model here um, because you mentioned seeing somebody like in a Walmart or whatnot. I think we could probably fix the foster care system in the United States if we paid more attention to preventing the abuse and neglect from the get-go. And, and with that, I, I, I huge, huge issues. Uh, it's not one answer, but one thing we could start with in each community is focusing um, more efforts and supports on the families, the families that we know that are struggling. Instead of a neighbor calling in a family next door because the child came over to borrow milk and then the neighbor goes, well, that mom, I don't like that mom perception or whatever, doesn't have milk, I'm gonna report the child. And then disproportionately, we end up seeing children of poverty being taken into care neglect uh we don't need to blow things up like that we need to really focus on those really serious situations of abuse and neglect and the perspective of just judging somebody walking into walmart and seeing some kids getting out of control or seeing a child on one of those little harnesses and leashes and turning them into you know cps 
we need to look as a society at our members and embrace them as future of the community and not rat them out but help. You help the family next door or you help your community leaders learn what some of the problems and struggles are for people in all walks of life, whether it's race or socioeconomic uh, statuses. Somebody lost their job, lost their car, they got 10 children at home and now they have no way of getting the children to school. Uh, so we're going to report them to CPS because the kids are truly, well, can't we figure out as a society how we're going to get this parent new van and maybe help with the job and and get the children to school before we immediately sweep in and say, you're a bad parent. I, I want to see supports improve for families. And once children enter the system, we also need to continue with those supports for those parents too. They're going to work services and try to improve their life because they were in a rough spot. Something happened. Uh, if we can work with them and help them and get them the supports they need to be an effective and a safe parent, then, then let's do it. Let, let, let's get the kids out of foster care. And, and if they need to go home, let's get them reunited. If that's not safe and permanent, let's find some fictive kin, some family, some grandma, some aunts, some uncles, cousins, even um, an older uh, sibling. Uh, something else I do that I, I talk about in the book, it's, it's on my website as well, is that I uh, I... Uh, rehab furniture for children that are going to their forever homes. So I've I've created, uh, I think it's 37 dressers so far, custom. And I'm working on four right now. I've got another one that's going to be delivered this week, but I get these dilapidated dressers. They remind me the way I was as a child, just, just worn down and broken and, and distressed. And they need a lot of love and care to bring them back to life. But I do this and uh, I don't often know who the children are because of confidentiality, but a, a supervisor might reach out to me and say, hey, I've got a 16-year-old uh, child that wants just, this is the next one coming up, solid white dresser with yellow stars. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's pretty simple. I mean, I get like Stranger Things, San Antonio Spurs, Frozen, um, uh, Minecraft. I get these like really difficult <laughs> requests. And then I just get, she just wants white, with yellow stars. And I'm like, okay. And then the only other thing I know is that the child um, was taken in by a sibling that aged out of care. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then the supervisor says, I can't you know, tell you who or their names or whatnot, but they also have a five-year-old uh, niece that wants uh, unicorns. And I'm like, if this kid is 18 or 19 and took in a 16 year old and a five year old it's gonna make me cry yeah I, white with yellow stars or <laughs> whatever they want if that's what they want then god willing i'm gonna make it happen as over 100 degrees out here in texas and i've been doing just a couple hours a day um but it's something that i can give back because i see the whole community of children as our future. Mm -hmm. These eventually are going to be people that are working in the nursing home that I'm going to be a patient in, you know? So uh, we we need to go outside of our comfort zone and and, and just do something in, in any fashion for kids. If it's not mentoring, advocacy, foster care and all that, I'm like, who who would ever thought like, I can make furniture. Exactly. I mean, it's just another way that we can employ the community to be part of the solution when you believe there's no way possible that you can help. There absolutely is a way that people can help. Yeah. And just get 
get curious about that. What is my role? What feels right to me? How can I help? It's much better than thinking they should just, or, you know, department of children and families should, or this person should, or that person should, or the police should, or the parents should, yeah. you know, there is no, they, they is we, I mean, we are, I've, I've always said this, but the community is responsible for unwanted, abused, neglected children. It, they're our responsibility. Yes. yes I've heard, uh, I, I guess I was listening to something recently this weekend. It, it, I don't remember what channel I heard it on. Uh, somebody was speaking about children in care in their particular state. And I think it came out of California. Essentially, children in the state, uh, in any state, in care, in conservatorship of the state, uh, there's been some jokes like, oh, the governor and uh, the governor's spouse, that's my parents because that's the conservatorship of the state. But it's like, no, I'm a resident of Texas. All these children in care in Texas are part of our family. You know, these are our children. These are our future. So there's got to be something we can all do, uh, which leads me to the point that um, California, Texas, Florida, Illinois, New York, uh, they lead the nation in tens of thousands of children being in foster care. Now, granted, there are also big states. We're a big state. We've got millions of people here. Um, but when you've got millions of people densely populated in a state like California, Texas, Illinois, Florida, and all, uh, and then you've got just tens of thousands of children in care there, that means there's just more millions of people to step up and do something. And even in a small community, maybe a rural community in Iowa or um, oh, Nebraska, uh, there might be a couple thousand people in the community and maybe a handful of kids in care. Well, doesn't that just inflate the numbers of how many more people can contribute to mm. those children yeah. and the community and keeping kids out of care, or getting kids back where they need to go, finding them a permanent solution? Uh, every child is going to have a different experience in care and every advocate's experience is different. Uh, I don't speak for the CASA program or for all advocates. Uh, we're all unique. Um, the outcomes I've had in my cases are uh, pretty unique. Um, there's no cookie cutter answer for what we do. Uh, just committing yourself passionately, being dedicated and uh, listening to the children and really doing that fact finding, like I said, to give the judge the the best recommendation is uh, the way we're going to get the best outcome for these kids. Absolutely. Well, anyone that is interested in being a CASA or just like wants to look into being guardian and light, I'm uh, CASA can, can go check out your local CASA. You should just Google CASA in whatever county you are and uh, whatever organization should come up. Well, I would say there's some there's some naming conventions that are different among some programs. So probably the fastest way to figure this out, because there's like 97,900 CASA and GAL advocates across the country, 49 states, including the District, District of Columbia. If those persons interested after hearing this uh, podcast would go to the National CASA Gale Association's main website and then select their states, 
And then it'll give them a list of all the organizations and the various names. One might be called Voices for Children. Another might be CASA. Another might be CASA Gale. Another one might just be Guardian of Lyme. So there's going to be all kinds of different names. But the best thing to do is go to the National CASA Gale Association's uh, master website for the overarching uh, program model for the nation and then finding your state and narrowing into your community. Uh, I also have the, that link on my website at um, joanulsher.com, J-O-A-N-U-L-S-H-E-R.com. Uh, and then also a link to my uh, my local program, Child Advocate San Antonio. And again, I put the, the links in the, the back of the book as well. I just feel that it's important to share no matter where you are in the country. This is not a Joan Ulsher Buffalo, New York story or a Joan Ulsher San Antonio story. This is a national story. It's a local, regional, and national problem for these children. And uh, anywhere you're at, um, there's there's going to be some way that we can provide solutions to get you programmed into the right uh, way or the right fit for uh, advocacy. Yes. And there's, if you don't want the commitment of being a CASA or guardian ad litem, you can do something. There's nothing stopping you from being like Joan's neighbor was to her growing up or Joan's boss. Like just think about your daily interactions with people and you can really hang it forward, buying ice cream, buying cookies, buying, buying the, the, the car load of kids meal ahead of you in the, or behind you in the drive-thru uh, helping mom out at Walmart. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. Well, and you can start too by reading Joan's book, Misplaced Childhood. We'll link it in the show notes. Would you like people to go to your website to get that? Is that the best way? Oh, for sure. Yeah. If they, if they go to my website, they're going to learn a lot more about the book um, and myself and some other advocacy efforts. And then there's some links, to, like I said, to the CASA programs as a whole. Uh, but for sure, since we didn't we we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the the content of the book or uh, the, the name of the book is is called yeah misplaced childhood a true story of resiliency and child advocacy. I think that readers uh, going to that site will um, get a flavor for what to expect. Uh, it will be published uh, September nineteenth, two thousand twenty three. Um, through Amazon and and uh, bookstores. If you don't find it on a shelf in your bookstore, you can request it from that store, whether it's Barnes and Nobles or an independent store or whatnot. Uh, and there'll be an ebook available too. And I'm planning on doing an audiobook uh, after January. But my idea is just to get the message out there, share my story. Um, I don't know what kind of response to get from those closest to me who, who've never heard a lot of the detail before. But again, the idea is that have this uh, influence you or inspire you to be a change agent in your own community. Um, and even start with your own family and, and then go on from there. I love it. Well, thank you so much, not only for everything you do, but providing a resource, being brave enough to tell your story, use your story for good, go through all that it takes. And I mean, like you just talked about, I don't know, you know, what this means for people reading it that are close to my life that don't know this stuff. You have altering uh, perceptions from your brother. Um, so writing these things and putting ourselves out there isn't comfortable. And it does take a certain amount of bravery to choose to do good. Um, so I want to commend you for that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I think somebody who had um, experiences like mine, or a life like mine, or maybe even an adult child who's just now leaving the foster care system, may even pick it up and realize like, wow, uh, my life's not over. There's still a future out there. I don't have to be a victim. I can be a survivor. I can thrive and I can have a purpose and I can make a difference in another person's life. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much, Joan, for all of your insights and um, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.